Howdy, and welcome to Our Earth Rising, a podcast by students and faculty from Texas A&M University. Our podcast aims to spotlight each of our planet's major ecospheres and to discuss the complicated, challenging, and wicked environmental problems found in today's globalized society. In this episode, we will be talking about the hydrosphere, which is made up of all the liquid on Earth's surface. More specifically, we will be taking a deep dive into some of the issues facing the world's oceans. We'll explore the underlying causes behind these issues, and we'll discuss possible solutions. A man-made phenomenon is threatening marine life in the Gulf of Mexico. The largest dead zone ever recorded in the U.S. has appeared at the mouth of the Mississippi River. The pH level of the ocean, so that's called ocean acidification, and then hypoxia, or low oxygen. Both of these can have uh, adverse effects on marine organisms. By low oxygen areas, we mean those areas of the ocean where oxygen is so low that some fish are starting to have trouble breathing. And that means in practice that they sometimes have to escape to other areas where there's more oxygen. There can be a loss of habitat for fish. So some areas that were once good for living are no longer good for them to live in and they have to go away. In order to understand how humans have contributed to some of the problems facing oceans today, scientists and researchers first need to conduct tests and record observations from the marine environment in order to understand the physical and chemical trends taking place both recently and in the distant past. Austin Bagan, a member of our team, interviewed Dr. Brendan Rourke to discuss this process and what kind of information we can learn about the oceans in this way. I am Brendan Rourke. Uh, I am a professor in the geography department at Texas A&M in the College of Geosciences. I do research uh, as a geochemist, as a paleoceanographer. I am co-director uh, with Dr. Grossman in the geology department of the Stable Isotope Geosciences Facility and also a member of the Ken Williams Radiogenic Facility. Dr. Rourke, what does it mean to reconstruct in terms of Earth's natural past, and what can scientists learn from this type of research? So when we talk about uh, reconstructing uh, past climate conditions, we are attempting to go back in time, and going back in time uh, can mean going back 10 years, 100 years, 10,000 years, 100,000 years, a million years, uh, just sort of depends on what sort of time frame you're interested in. We're mostly interested in going back in time in order to extend what we know to be our observational period, right? So extend beyond uh, what we've observed with, say, instrumental records. So the easiest example is air temperatures or sea surface temperatures. We have instrumental records from different parts of the world, uh, maybe going back to you know, the 1800s, right? But that's not going to be equally covered throughout the world. So a lot of those sort of earlier temperature records or sea surface temperature records 
from an instrumental standpoint are coming from Europe and the North Atlantic, whereas in 1900 in the South Pacific, there are very few, if any, instrumental records. Any of the sort of variables or criteria that we need today to better understand and better predict variability, we would like to have similar access to that kind of data going past the instrumental record in order to reconstruct what climate looked like or ocean variability looked like prior to those instrumental records. And a good example of that is, say, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which is a sort of change in climate in the North Pacific and in North America that has been associated with, say, changes in precipitation patterns or precipitation amounts. Um, it was also first identified as a change in the amount of uh, salmon catch that was occurring in the North Pacific. But it's a sort of variability that occurs every 30-ish years, right? And if you have an instrumental record that's 120 years long, that's not actually long enough to understand that sort of level of variability. The reason why we're interested in asking and answering those kinds of questions is in order to better predict what might happen in the future, we need to understand what has happened in the past and we need a better understanding of what is happening now. All right, and I know an important part of the reconstruction research is about studying different proxies and finding those archives that hold those proxies. So Dr. Work, what is a proxy and how are they related to environmental variables such as temperature, moisture, and even ocean circulations? And feel free to give the listeners a few examples. So you, you obviously did your homework uh, and made a distinction between a proxy and an archive, which is uh, something that a lot of people don't understand or fully appreciate. But a proxy is some kind of uh, measurement that we can make that serves as a stand-in for an environmental variable that is of importance to understanding a climate phenomenon. An archive is basically a set of samples in which we measure that proxy. Common archives used in environmental reconstruction or paleoclimate reconstructions include things like ice cores, ocean sediment cores, speleothems or stalagmites or stalactites. And then there's a large number of sort of proxies that can be measured in each of those. Another common archive are corals. So uh, sclerotinian corals that are growing on, say, the Great Barrier Reef, and you can take cores out of those sort of long-lived coral heads that can, say, live for 100 years or 150 years and uh, measure the strontium-calcium ratio in those corals. And the strontium-calcium varies in the corals in relation to sea surface temperature changes. So in that case, the strontium calcium is a proxy for sea surface temperature changes in the archive of corals. Kind of those types of questions that you might be trying to answer is, especially in the present time, 
would be how is anthropogenic change affecting the oceans? Mm -hmm. How is it affecting those proxies and archives um, that you have been mentioning? So what have been some trends that you've been seeing about the marine environments as it transitions from into the Holocene into the more Anthropocene that we are in now? The last five or six years, we've been working on a project looking at the impact of fishing and the recovery rates of uh, these deep sea corals after they've been damaged by fishing activities that contact the bottom, right? So, uh, and this is work that we've been doing uh, in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, basically going out of Honolulu up towards Japan past Midway. And it's sort of a combination of ecology, genetics, and geochemistry, because we need to be able to age date the different deep sea corals and we are truly looking at you know, an anthropogenic impact. You have large sort of fleets that have been working in that area that have been fishing. And in fact, it's an area where a large amount, if not the largest amount of sort of resource extraction in terms of fisheries. So the, the anthropogenic impacts are, are quite profound in that area. We also benefit from the fact that because of expansion of the U.S.'s um, economic exclusion zone, the U.S. was basically able to ban a lot of fishing activities 35 years ago-ish, and that allows us to look at areas that were never fished, areas where fishing was stopped about 35 years ago, and compare that to areas that are still fished. And given the lifespans uh, and the growth rates of some of these deep sea corals, we were not anticipating there to be very much recovery happening in those areas. And it turns out, in fact, that there is uh, evidence of some recovery occurring in the areas that were where fishing had been stopped about 35 years ago, um, which was surprising. The impact of that is, you know, fishing fleets are moving around the world. They're increasing activity in the South Pacific, for example, and being able to better understand and know how those deep sea ecosystems are being impacted and how fast they're recovering or not recovering is really important to managing those uh, fishery zones. And so we have a lot of what are considered very important marine habitats associated with these deep sea corals. And there's a lot of international regulatory efforts that go into protecting those vulnerable marine habitats from fishing activities and our work that includes, you know, some kind of uh, reconstruction of how fast those communities are recovering, how fast those deep sea corals are recovering, really inform those policy decisions about how and where to best protect those vulnerable ecosystems.
It is very promising to hear that the ecosystems are really fighting back and recovering from that human impact that can definitely leave a big effect on the entire system and really mess it up. While there was recovery and it's not what we expected, it wasn't very much though. Um, but it's better than nothing, uh, you know, quite obviously. And where it's important actually is there there are some groups or some you know points of view where well recovery was not going to be possible anyways. And so if it's not possible, then we don't need to worry about protecting areas once they have already been damaged by fishing activity. So uh, by demonstrating that, in fact, recovery is possible, that does give credence to the idea that protecting some areas will be beneficial. And yeah, in fact, um, that's what the U.S. has done uh, with the creation of some of these marine monuments, uh, in particular, the marine monuments in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. So one of the things that we discovered in the course of this project, this was not something that we had planned on looking at, although we were sort of like, well, this might be interesting. And so we should just do these measurements. And so we, we really started taking a look at ocean alkalinity or total alkalinity measurements, um, basically looking at changes in ocean pH and looking at the effects of ocean acidification on some of these deep sea corals. And in fact, we found uh, at a number of sites some living deep sea coral reefs where nobody had expected them to exist, in part because the Pacific, that sort of saturation horizon, where if you're a calcium carbonate organism be living below that saturation horizon, you are likely to be dissolving away and therefore coral reefs would not be able to accumulate. That saturation horizon has sort of been getting shallower or shoaling uh, as a result of anthropogenic CO2 emissions into the atmosphere being incorporated into the surface ocean. And in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, that sort of saturation horizon is somewhere around, you know, six to 800 meters. Those are the exact depths at which we're finding uh, some of these reefs um, that have been formed. And so we're continuing our studies to look directly at the impact of ocean acidification has on the formation of these deep sea coral reefs in that region. And part of that is doing modern measurements on ocean acidification, total alkalinity and DIC and CO2 concentrations, for example, but then also using the coral skeletons and boron isotopes to reconstruct ocean pH changes going back in time using the deep sea coral skeleton. It's sort of a modern look at uh, what is happening from an ocean acidification standpoint, and then reconstructing past changes in ocean acidification for that region going back and based upon some sort of preliminary radiocarbon dates on some of the specimens that we've already collected 
you know, we're going to be able to do those reconstructions going back several thousand years. We have the potential of developing a pretty long boron isotope record, which boron isotopes are a proxy for ocean pH. With your research with that, how you're trying to look at acidification now to acidification over the past, does it seem to be more drastic now than what has been in the past or in the on a long stretch or in, back into the Holocene or Pleistocene? The challenge for us is that these are relatively remote regions of the Pacific Ocean, and so there isn't a lot of uh, measurements uh, being made there. Uh, most of the sort of predictions are based on models of how uh, pH should change in that area. You know, even by virtue of doing the sort of modern uh, measurements on the water column chemistry, we are expanding, I guess, the sort of data set uh, that is available. And all that is a sort of long way of, of saying we don't actually know very much about how specifically it has changed in that region. And uh, we're not far enough along in our project to sort of give you some preliminary uh, findings or answers to that question. But hopefully in a year or two, we will be able to give you some specific answers to that question. As discussed with Dr. Rorick, scientists have been using numerous different methods to study the ocean and have found many abnormalities which are mostly attributed to human activity. One thing we know is that as society has developed and industrialized, humans have introduced new and more pollutants into the environment. The oceans are not immune to the effects of these pollutants, and over time, we've witnessed the impacts these pollutants have on ocean waters and the life that resides within them. To further discuss current issues plaguing our world's oceans today, our team member Christina Samuel was able to interview Dr. Piers Chapman, a professor in the Department of Oceanography at Texas A&M. My name is Piers Chapman. Um, I'm the former department head of the Department of Oceanography. Um, currently, I'm a research professor and I've been working for almost 50 years now in various aspects of oceanography. Uh, the biggest one probably recently was that I was head of a large consortium that got a lot of money from BP after the Deepwater Horizon spill. Other than that, um, I've done a lot of work on the hypoxia problem that occurs on the Louisiana shelf. I've also done work on deep water, both in the South Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. And generally, I do a lot of chemistry in various aspects of it in the marine environment. I was wondering if you can tell me first about how humans have negatively impacted oceanic chemical cycles and what are some ways to reduce this impact? Well, the big one, obviously, is carbon dioxide. And that goes into the ocean, mainly comes in from the atmosphere. You know, every time you drive your truck up and down Texas Avenue or whatever, you're putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And this has very deleterious, or is working to the stage of having a very deleterious effect on the ocean because 
it changes the acidity of the water, of the ocean water. Um, when you put CO2 into a solution, it becomes more acidic. And this has direct effects on many different animals. Anything, for instance, that makes a shell out of calcium carbonate, which could be oysters, uh, mussels, lots of shellfish, or even other little, very tiny microscopic features called coccolithophores, which have formed large layers of rock in various parts of the world. Um, these have shells made of calcium carbonate. And as the ocean gets more and more acidic, they can't actually make these shells. This is due to changes in the composition of the water chemistry. Uh, but we've also found that the more acidic the water is, this affects fish fertility, for instance. It affects the survival rates of fish eggs and larvae. And so in terms of its effects on the whole globe, um, this is probably the biggest problem we have at the moment. Nearer the coast, you have problems such as um, excessive nutrients coming in, either from, say, sewage effluents or from agri agricultural runoff. There's a lot of organic materials that we use in terms of pesticides and things, and these also get washed down into the ocean, and they can amplify their effects up the food chain because if, say, some phytoplankton takes in some of these chemicals and then they're eaten by other organisms, zooplankton or fish, um, then these chemicals get concentrated the higher up the food chain you go. Heavy metals in particular um, are subject to this, as are organic compounds such as pesticides and things. And we're also finding now that um, things like personal care products, for instance, are getting into the water supply. And because these often affect um, the sex hormones, these can actually cause changes in populations in marine animals because of you know, them taking in these chemicals in the water. I see. So there's a multifaceted effect. Is any of it reversible at this point? Yes. Um, certainly nutrient inputs from, say, sewage farms and agricultural runoff, um, and by, by nutrients I mean nitrogen and phosphorus essentially, um, yes, you can, you can reverse those, um, there are ways to do it. The Mississippi puts in huge quantities of both nitrogen and phosphorus every day. One way we could get around that would be by Firstly, reducing the amount of fertilizer we use on areas such as the Corn Belt. Secondly, we'll be putting in um, tertiary sewage treatment and the sewage works. Um, and thirdly, and this is probably the easiest, is instead of cultivating right up to the edge of the river, if you have a strip of land that you allow to be fallow, that will trap a lot of the um, nutrients before they actually get into the river. Um, and also, another very good way would be reintroducing a lot of the uh, marshy areas um, that have all been drained to increase agricultural production. And, and if we allowed some of these to revert to marshland, uh, marshes are actually pretty effective and efficient at taking out um, nitrogen and phosphorus. In the Black Sea, for instance, at the mouth of the Danube, 
before the Russian Empire broke up in the early 90s, um, the Black Sea had a huge hypoxic area around the mouth of the Danube, uh, largely due to all the fertilizers that were coming down the river. Once the Russian Federation broke up, they weren't subsidizing the farmers with all the fertilizers any longer. And things definitely started to improve pretty quickly. Thank you so much. That was very informative. You published several studies about hypoxia in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, I was wondering if you could um, explain exactly what it is and what are its causes or um, mechanisms that you found. Hypoxia basically is when the oxygen content in the bottom waters, and let's use the Louisiana Shelf as an example, because that's the, the biggest area that's affected in the U.S., the bottom waters of the shelf lose the oxygen. And this is because all the nutrients that are coming down the river or just running off the land close to the coast, they fuel phytoplankton blooms. And these blooms are very intense. The zooplankton, which eat the phytoplankton, can't respond in time to them. And as a result, the phytoplankton, which have a turnover time of roughly a week, whereas the larger zooplankton have turnover times of somewhere in the region of three to four weeks, the phytoplankton blooms and then it dies. And when it dies, it sinks. As it sinks, it starts to decompose as the bacteria in the area help break down all the organic compounds and re-release um, nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. As a result of this, when you decompose organisms, organic matter in general, this requires oxygen. And so the phytoplankton blooms sink, and as they get near the bottom, they're decomposing and they're using up the oxygen. Now, during the winter and spring, when there are you know, plenty of storms going through, the water on the shelf gets very well mixed. But during the summer, you get a density difference between the water at the bottom and the water on the top, which is being fueled by water coming down the Mississippi in particular. And this creates this density interface. Once the phytoplankton get below the density interface, because it's stable, then that means they will use up the oxygen down at the bottom but the oxygen isn't being replenished because the whole water column isn't turning over. And so you end up with a well-oxygenated surface layer and a layer on the bottom, which is very much reduced in oxygen. And this can go all the way to zero oxygen, in which case it's called anoxia, and virtually nothing can live in totally anoxic conditions. Hypoxia is a sort of an intermediate stage um, and it's defined when you have less than um, about two milligrams per liter of oxygen or one and a half milliliters per liter of dissolved oxygen. And at typical summer temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico, saturation occurs at about five mils per liter or about seven milligrams per liter. And so you, you get this surface layer, which is well oxygenated around about or four and a half, five mils per liter. Down below, it can be anything from zero to 
two, three, something like that. And so you have this big imbalance in the oxygen budget. And that's what causes hypoxia. So it's, it's a threefold thing, really. One, you have to have the density interface, which is why it occurs in summer, just after the main runoff has occurred in spring with all the snow melt and all the, the rivers um, bringing water down from about 40% of the continental US. Um, you have to have the nutrients that are dissolved in this river water. And typically the farmers will be applying fertilizers during the winter ready for spring planting. And then that, because nitrogen and phosphorus are both pretty soluble, they will dissolve in water and run off the fields and into the rivers and they come down like that. And then that fuels the phytoplankton bloom, and it's as the phytoplankton die and sink that you end up with the hypoxic conditions. Would you say hypoxia is then not a naturally reoccurring phenomenon because you were discussing the seasonal changes having impacts on it, or is it just merely exacerbated by anthropogenic effects? Well, no, hypoxia itself occurs um, regularly in many parts of the world in what we call the upwelling regions, uh, which are the most productive areas in the global ocean, generally along the western seaboard of the continents. What's happening is that cold, nutrient-rich water is coming up from a depth of around about 200 to 300 meters, and it's being brought up by the wind system. And this delivers nutrients into the surface, and it fuels phytoplankton blooms again. And as they sink, organisms are going to decay. And, and this will then result in low oxygen locally all along the, the sort of the shelf edge, Oregon and California, also all along the South American coast, off Spain and Portugal, and um, then also off North Africa, and then the, the area I'm most familiar with, which is off Southern Africa. And you, so you get all these areas, you get large uh, regions where you have very low oxygen um, in the bottom water. And in fact, in, in the Indian Ocean, for instance, you get layers about 600 meters thick in the middle of the water column, which have virtually zero oxygen in them. The areas around the coasts, um, it's where it's being exacerbated by the um, nutrients that are coming in from the land because of our activities on land, mainly agriculture and sewage pollution. I know you also have done extensive research on the dead zones. Is this when hypoxia goes off the deep end? Um, I mean, the dead zone is not a term that I like to use. I know it's a popular term because it implies that nothing can live there. And certainly there are plenty of bacteria that live in dead zones. They don't necessarily have the same uh, biochemistry as bacteria that live in well oxygenated waters. I mean, there are bacteria that have evolved to use um, methane, for instance, or even sulfides. Um, I mean, the Black Sea, for instance, that is totally anoxic below a depth of about 150 meters. And that is because there's a narrow sill out of the Black Sea into the Bosphorus and then it thence into the Eastern Mediterranean. And once the water gets down below this level, it can't get out. And it's deep enough that it doesn't get mixing down from the atmosphere into it. And so this, this whole lower level of the Black Sea, which I'm, I can't remember what the depth is offhand, but let's say it's a thousand meters deep 
So anything below 200 meters is going to be anoxic. In our interviews, we've had the opportunity to discuss various problems with our interviewees. And so, to conclude, we wanted to hear their thoughts on how we can begin to resolve them. In regard to reversing and preventing further damage to marine systems, Dr. Rourke had this to say. Depending upon the country and, you know, certainly within U.S. waters, there are a lot of fishing regulations on, you know, what can be fished, what time of year. While there's certainly room for improvement in some of those fishery management policies, there are also good efforts being made. International high seas fisheries are pretty hard to regulate. It's hard to get all the countries involved to agree, but that is an area that I think would benefit from more management efforts. And in particular, protecting those sensitive marine habitats. And part of the issue there is simply knowing where those vulnerable marine habitats are and defining them in a way that regulators and policymakers understand that they need to be conserving or protecting or regulating those areas. Are there vulnerable communities that are going to be impacted by, say, you know, some kind of resource extraction, and that can be, you know, fishing, it can be, you know, running power lines, it can be offshore wind turbines, for example. And that's just frankly an exploration effort. It's not easy to work in these environments, particularly if you want to look at, you know, sort of benthic communities on seamounts, you need submersibles or remotely operated vehicles. It's expensive to do that. In a lot of cases, you know, seafloor maps are not available. So we have to do a lot of preliminary precursor work before we even start doing more advanced work with ROVs, for example. We know, particularly in the open ocean and the high seas, we know very little about what's out there. And so it really speaks to a need for continued what I like to call exploration science, where you're mixing fundamental exploration with scientific question. And that's not easy to do, but it's quite rewarding and can really sort of help expand what policymakers are looking at in how they manage those resources. When Dr. Chapman was asked about solutions as well, he echoed the idea of further action required through regulation and policy. The main thing is that we need to realize that the ocean is really important. It provides us with more than 50% of the oxygen that we breathe, for instance. Um, and so if we're going to mess it up by adding more and more carbon dioxide, making it more and more acidic, so that plankton and other animals can't survive, then we are not doing ourselves any favors. And certainly we can relieve some of the pressure on the ocean. It just takes political will to do it. And at the moment, we, and I'm using the we in terms of humans in general, not just the US or Texas or anywhere else, we don't really have the political will. 
While today we arguably do not have the political will to institute the dramatic change Dr. Paris Chapman speaks of, we do see signs of progress through the research and work conducted by various organizations across the world today. Texas A&M, along with other universities and institutions, has been developing models to measure the size of the hypoxic dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico in order to better understand the key drivers of hypoxia and its consequences. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is regularly conducting research to understand and predict environmental changes to support efforts like fisheries management and coastal restoration. We have even seen global organizations make strides in policy efforts. Oceana is a global nonprofit dedicated to protecting the world's oceans. They have successfully advocated for policy changes in the United States, Scotland, the Philippines, and many other countries. If you'd like to learn more about the organization, go to Oceana.org. Clearly, there are people, institutions, and organizations working towards positive change, and with increased support, hopefully the political will will follow. This concludes our episode on the hydrosphere. We want to give special thanks to Dr. Rourke and Dr. Chapman for agreeing to appear on the podcast. If you enjoyed listening to our conversation, we encourage you to share the podcast with your fellow Earthlings and consider leaving a review. Next episode, we will be covering Earth's atmosphere. Before we sign off, we would like to take this moment to plug our social media channels where you can receive updates about the podcast, learn more about our guests and their research, as well as explore deeper topics related to Earth's environment and ecospheres that we just cannot fit into one episode. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Our Earth Rising and on Instagram at Our Earth Rising Podcast. Be sure to also subscribe to our YouTube channel titled Our Earth Rising Podcast for extended interview clips and more. As mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the Our Earth Rising podcast is created and produced by a team of students and faculty at Texas A&M University. The speakers and interviewers for this episode were Nicole Svetlov, Christina Samuel, and myself, Austin Bagan. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep rising.